there, and welcome to episode 15 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your smooth as a baby's bottom host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. This episode covers two more episodes from season two. We have episode three, 40 Feet High and It Kills, and episode four, Just Lucky, I guess. I am still recording from the old chair. You're probably going to hear it creaking during this episode. Sorry about that. It turns out that I have severe case of patellar tendonitis in both knees, and I'm currently doing physical therapy for that. So soon I will be able to hopefully once again record while sitting on the floor so you won't hear me move around as much and possibly be able to go up and downstairs without swearing a lot. Anyway, enough about my knees. Let's go to Hawaii. What's it like outside? City's in a panic. Island's tied up end to end. Gentlemen, please bring this over here in front of the map. Same picture we get here, Steve. Emergency plan not working because the public got the warning soon as we did. Everybody got it. HPD reports most of their men had no time to reach their posts. I tell you, Steve, so far, this whole thing is... Save it for the postmortem. How much time we got before it hits? 19 minutes. Right here, sir. Steve? Hello? Yes, Admiral? Yes, sir. Are you certain? Yes, sir? Yeah, very strange. Yes, sir, I'll get back to you. Thank you. Listen to this. All landlines to the observatory are out. No alert has been sounded by any other station on the seismic sea wave system. Neither the FAA nor the Pacific Field Director was alerted. Maybe a breakdown in the system. Not the way I read it. I think this whole tsunami is a hoax. Who would do a thing like this? Let's find out. Season 2, Episode 3. 40 Feet High and It Kills. Air date October 8th, 1969. Directed by Michael O'Hurley. This will be the first of 36 episodes for him. Story by Robert Dennis. This is his second of six. And Edward Lasco. This is his only episode for Hawaii Five-O. And teleplay by Robert Dennis. A group of well-dressed men arrive at a weather station, enter through the roof, not suspicious at all, take out security and take over the weather relay. They place a call to their boss and... It's Wofat. He tells them to sound the alarm in 11 minutes. Dun-dun-dun. Steve arrives at a scientist convention held at a villa by the beach and greets an old friend, Padway. Steve is there to help provide security for the genetic scientists who are doing a seminar. They watch two of the scientists, Lochner and Crichton, have a cantankerous exchange until Lochner's daughter, Victoria, breaks it up and sends her father to take his medicine. Back at the weather station, Wolfat's men do as they're told and send out a bogus tsunami warning as Steve takes Victoria Lochner to see the ocean. They talk about genetic engineering, the ethics of which Steve is wary of. Steve starts to work his charms on Victoria, but he's interrupted by Dano calling on the car radio to inform him about the tsunami warning. They only have 35 minutes before it hits. Steve gives Danny his orders before going back to the villa to evacuate the scientists, which is exactly what Wofat hopes as his hired hands set up a roadblock in anticipation. At the office, things are jumping with preparations and emergency coordination. Steve gets a call from an admiral saying that there's no other alert going out, and in fact, only one weather station is reporting the tsunami. Steve suspects a hoax. Jinho and Kono go to the weather station, find the security guards tied up, the remnants of the false alarm, and the perpetrators long gone. Wofat's plan pays off as his men manage to kidnap Lochner, who attempts to escape by claiming to be Crichton. 
Being bad guys, they appreciate the attempt, but chloroform Lochner and take him away in their car. Padway updates Steve on Lochner's kidnapping. Steve talks to Victoria, assuring her that they'll find him. Meanwhile, Wofat meets Lochner, and they discuss genetic engineering, as Wofat would like to create a master race, which Lochner isn't impressed with. It doesn't matter how Lochner feels, because they'll be departing for Peking soon. Fortunately for Wofat, Lochner has a very well-kept secret. He's a diabetic, and oops, he just broke the only vial of insulin he has with him. He'll be dead before morning. Wofat isn't dissuaded. He likes a challenge. Steve asks Victoria to tell him everything about her father. She says that he'll resist under questioning and that he's unpredictable. When Steve asks her about her father's medication, Victoria reluctantly informs him about the diabetes. Steve calls Danny on the radio and tells him to get to the villa and get the insulin. Unfortunately, one of Wofat's men gets the insulin first, and it results in a shootout between him, Danny, and Chin Ho. The man gets shot but still manages to flee. He makes it to a payphone where he calls Wofat to tell him the mission failed, collapsing as Danny and Chin Ho get to him. Chin calls for an ambulance. Lochner delights in Wofat's failure. When Wofat says he'll find a way to get more, Lochner tells him that he requires a very specific type and he doesn't feel like divulging which one. At the hospital, Steve interrogates the wounded man, but all he says is that Wofat will kill him. Now Steve knows who he's up against and has an idea why Lochner was kidnapped. They need to find where Lochner obtained his insulin on Oahu. That's where Wofat will go. That's where they need to be. So let me just start off by saying that this episode was in the running to be one of my favorite episodes of the season when I was doing my series of blog posts on my favorite episode of every season of Hawaii Five-0. This one was in the running. Ultimately, it went to a different episode that's much later in the season. But I still love this episode very much for two main reasons. One, Kai Day is back as Wofat. We haven't seen Wofat since the pilot in the first season. So it's a joy to see him come back. And two, Harold Lochner is played by Will Gear, And you're talking about an added joy because he is so good at being that prickly scientist and poking not only at his fellow scientists, as we, we see in one of the early scenes, but also at Wofat. Their scenes together are pure magic, and I'm sure I will gush a lot more about that as we go along. But let's start at the beginning because the opening scene is quite interesting. We see this car pull up to the weather station and these four well-dressed men, they're dressed in suits, get out. And at first you don't really suspect anything until you see them start going over the wall. And you're like, hmm, that's probably not the way they are supposed to enter the building. They end up going around the building and climbing up an outside ladder to get to the roof and that's how they get access to the building. So these people are breaking and entering while well-dressed. I have to appreciate the commitment to class while committing villainy. You just don't get that sort of thing anymore. Nobody puts on a suit and tie to break and enter. But they break in and they dispatch the guards. Nobody gets killed. Everybody gets chloroformed. They're very fond of, I'm guessing it's chloroform. It's either gonna be chloroform or ether. I don't remember what was popular in 1969. But it's one of those. But they all get knocked out and tied up. And then we see them go through the weather relay and you're kind of wondering what's going on when one of the men makes a phone call. And it looks like he does so without dialing. So that's amazing. 
And when we first see who answers on the other end, we only see him in shadow. So it's a very Bond villain-like reveal when we go from the shadow to seeing that it is Wofat. And my heart trills every time I see him because Kai Day is just so, so good that I can't help but be excited that he's going to be in an episode. Doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. He asks his man what the correct time is and then he tells them to sound the alarm in 11 minutes. So you're kind of curious as to what this alarm is. I mean, it's at a weather station. So what could this possibly be? If you're not familiar with Hawaii weather, like I'm not that familiar. I live in a cornfield, so a tsunami was not the first thing I thought of when I saw the episode the first time. We don't get many tsunamis out here, actually. So then we see Steve arrive at the beachside villa where the scientists are all at. Now here's the thing. When I watch the episodes for the podcast, I watch, I tend to watch them twice. The first time I watch them is so I can take notes to write the synopsis up. The second time I watch them is so I can pull sound clips and to write down my own observational notes. So I tend to pay just a little bit more attention the second time around because then I can add stuff I missed to my synopsis if I need to. But the first time around, I'm usually concentrating on jotting down the important plot notes. So when I watched this episode the second time around, I was looking at Steve. Steve's car pulls up to a chain link fence. He identifies himself. They open up the gate and he pulls in and he starts pulling up to this driveway. And I'm like, this driveway looks really familiar. This looks like Robin's Nest from the 1980 Magnum P.I. And I'm looking at it going, yeah, this, this really does. It looks like Robin's Nest. And then I looked it up and lo and behold... The beachside villa that they're using is actually the house they used for Robin's Nest for the 1980 Magnum P.I. No longer there, which is sad. They had to tear it down. But it was kind of neat to see it in a slightly different context. The gate is very much so different because uh, in, in Magnum P.I. it's like a wrought iron gate. Well, in this, it's a chain link fence, so it's kind of different. But the way they show it... You never see the guest house, but you do see the house and you see the lawn and you can see from one angle, you get to see the, the walkway down to the lagoon. So it was kind of neat to see them use this house for these exterior shots 11 years before it became famous on another show. But anyway, so when Steve goes to the villa, we get to introduce to Padway, then we get introduced to Lochner, who is just tormenting poor Crichton. Oh, Dr. Crichton. I did think your paper this afternoon was fantastical. You did? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I would have stood and applauded if this seminar were about science fiction. Science fiction? Oh, no, Professor. I wouldn't want to invade your territory. Well, I'm afraid my private territory isn't equal to your myopic reasoning. The other one's locked in. Are you sure they're on the same side? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder. And you get a good feel what kind of a person Lochner is just from that little exchange. And also you kind of get an understanding of what Victoria's role is in her father's life because she breaks it up and sends him off to go take his medicine. And later when Steve's talking to her at the beach, she tells him that she just takes all of her father's notes, but she doesn't really understand any of it. I can tell you this though, that... It's the science of expediting the process of evolution by stepping up the favorable mutation. In other words, they want to mess around with our genes so that all our children are geniuses? Something like that. So in that conversation, Steve does float the idea of what happens if this falls into the wrong hands, which is the whole premise of the episode, is that it's possibly falling into the hands of Wofat. And as much as we all love Wofat, 
he probably should not have this science at his disposal. So while he's talking to Victoria, the tsunami warning goes out. Dano calls him. And what's great about the tsunami warning going out is there's several different dispatchers they show doing it, relaying this warning. And if you look fast, there's an uncredited appearance by Herman Wedemeyer, a.k.a. Duke. So it's always fun to see him pop up. When Steve gets back to the office, it's like he he tells Dan, at one point tells Danny when he's given instructions, let's set up the office to be tsunami headquarters. And when you get there, it's like a whole bunch of people are in the office and there's a clear like dry erase board that with a map of Oahu or Honolulu on it that they're they're using. They're writing all over, you know, trying to coordinate everything. Meanwhile, out on the road, we see Wofat's men still well-dressed, now wearing uh, civil defense hats and armbands. So I'm guessing maybe that's why they were wearing the suits to break into the weather relay. They didn't want to have to change when they left. I don't know what civil defense people are supposed to wear. I definitely don't know back in 1969 if they had to be well-dressed with their hats and their armbands so people would take them seriously. But whatever the case, that's what they're dressed as, and they have the road blocked off, and they let one car go through because it doesn't have Lochner in it. The next car that comes up does. And like I said, he tries to prevent being kidnapped by claiming to be Crichton. And he says, I'm from London. And the guy the guy kidnapping him hesitates, asks for his picture. And when he reviews it, he sees that's who it is. And so he's like, nice try. Appreciate you. But you're going to be kidnapped now. And so then we get him taken to Wofat. And the meeting between the two of them, that first back and forth scene, absolutely glorious. Through the science of genetic engineering, you can change all that. For the first time since the dawn of creation, man will control his destiny. He will have the power to determine and transform future generations of his own species. Why? A truly inspiring prospect. Why? Why? I said why. Makes you think that with all our tampering, we can improve on nature. Surely you're joking. Not one Galileo or one Newton or one Einstein, but a thousand. Michelangelo's, Shakespeare's, and uh, may I say, Confucius's? <laughs> By the score. Scientists, artists, statesmen, writers, thinkers, warriors, in abundance. A society where genius will be the norm. Why, it would be a world of all chiefs and no Indians. <laughs> no, no, no. Not a world, Professor. A society. Of course, there will have to be workers. But then, we'll have the rest of the world for that. And they, too, will be superior animals. To support the master race. It seems to me the history's gone down that road once before. This time, uh, it will be your country, I suppose. Well, it has to begin. And somewhere. That's the yin and yang of it. That was my help. Don't be foolish, Professor. You've already been appointed director of the Institute for Genetic Engineering at Peking. The very first of its kind. You'll have unlimited financing and assistance. I'd rather have a 
sandwich. I could literally watch a whole episode of Will Gear and Kai Day picking at each other like that. It is so good because unfortunately you're just hearing it. You watch the episode, you're gonna see the facial expressions too that go along with it. Such good acting. They have wonderful chemistry together as antagonists, being antagonistic towards each other. So good. Just so good. I would rave for minutes about this, but we're not. We're going to move on. So Wofat informs him that he would like to make this master race. But to do that, we're going to go to Peking, which I believe is now Beijing. And Lochner's like, nah, I don't feel like it. I thought it was a really good move that he takes out the insulin and destroys it and says, I am willing to die, basically, rather than go off to China and work for you and create some master race that is only going to cause a whole lot of trouble. Not to mention, I think that this, that I don't know if Wolfat really realizes how much of a long game that would be because there's a lot of experimentation that has to happen. You're doing gene manipulation that takes years I guess he was just super committed and invested in it for the long haul. That's what makes him such a great villain. So meanwhile, Steve figures out that this tsunami warning is a hoax. They find out about Lochner being kidnapped. They start organizing for that. And what's great is that aside from knowing that he was kidnapped by four Asian men, they have nothing really to go on. They have no idea who's behind this, which is kind of a nice twist because we know, and we know what Steve's up against, but Steve doesn't know. And so he he talks to Victoria a couple of times trying to feel out what would her father's plans be? How would he try to get away or anything like that? And she admits not knowing her father very well because she says that she's really only worked with him for the last couple of years and she's really only known him for the last couple of years. But she says that her parents were married and she, for 25 years. And I'm like, well, did you just never see him? Was he just never home? Was he always in the lab? Did he just not talk to you? Were you sent away to a boarding school? What the hell? But she finally gives up that he has diabetes and he needs insulin. And Steve figures out, okay, that's what they're going to do. Because as it stands, she says he only carries one dose with him at all times. And it looked like more than one dose to me, but what do I know? The point is, is that they need to get to the villa and, and get his insulin, which Wofat comes up with that idea as well. There's the shootout. Danny and Chen Ho chase the wounded man who's driving less than well after being shot in the shoulder. And bless this actor who, who was doing this role because he, he does a great job of being wounded, getting to the, the phone booth, and he has to make a call to Wofat to let him know that the mission failed. And the first dime he brings out, he drops it. And you, you can't help, I mean, we know he's a bad guy, but you can't help but feel bad because how bad is your day going? You went to go get something for your boss. You get shot in the process and then you drop your damn dime when you're trying to give him a call to let him know everything's gone pear-shaped. But he manages to make the phone call and collapses just as Danny and Chin Ho get there. And Chin Ho does grab the phone and say hello, but Wofat's like, no, and hangs up. And Chin calls the ambulance. And it's great too when they we take him to the hospital because if you're a bad guy, you're most likely going to succumb to your wounds. So at the hospital, Steve and, and Victoria both go to the hospital. And Steve talks to the guy. And all the guy says... Wolf-fat will kill you. Which is a great way to tell Steve who is behind it all. And and for him, that's when everything clicks into place. Okay, it's Wolf-fat. Okay, we know now he suspected that Lautner was probably kidnapped because of his genetic engineering. Because as his daughter Victoria had told him earlier in the episode, that his her father had come up with something that was 
revolutionary and super secret. So he kind of already suspected that it had to do with genetic engineering, but now with Wolfat, he knows. That's exactly why he's being taken. And now that he knows the player, he knows the rules of the game. So it's all about getting ahead of Wofat to try to stop him from taking Lochner out of the country, which he is sure is the goal. And so it comes about that they know, they find out, well, Victor, Victoria reveals sort of, and this is the one part where the episode hits the wrong note for me. Victoria reveals that her father did have to obtain insulin while on Oahu, but she stops short of telling them what pharmacy they went to. Because as Steve says, they're going to need to get more insulin because they didn't get what was at the villa. They have to keep him alive. They're going to go to the pharmacy that supplied him. That's how we'll catch them. Well, for whatever reason, Victoria decides that since now they know it's Wofat, he's a he's a Red China agent, which I don't know why it just tickles me that they have to make sure to say it's Red China. And the end game is to take Lochner back to China. She decides that the whole plan is because Steve doesn't know where Wofat is holding her dad. He's decided to cut off his insulin supply to ensure that he dies so he won't be taken to China and won't turn against his country. Better dead than red. And it comes out of kind of left field. Like there's no really no reason for her to think that. Yes, she's frustrated because they haven't been able to find her father and, and it's typical police work in that Steve isn't sure who has him, so therefore he cannot be sure of where he's at. But they're working every lead they can to try to find him. Then when they get this huge breakthrough, and it is huge, he knows the score and he knows how to, to find her father. And she just suddenly decides that he's going to ensure her, her father's death. It really kind of rings false. I don't know if it was just to illustrate the thinking at the time that it is better to be dead than be a communist and the government, if you work for them, will ensure that? Or if it was just a way to ramp up the dramatic tension a little bit? I don't know. But it just came across really weird and kind of false. So it really didn't work for me. It was a little annoying. But she eventually comes to her senses and gives up the pharmacy. So it's a quick moving episode because we're already up to the climax. I don't want to spoil too much for you because it's really good and you really should watch it. But what I will say, slightly spoilery, is the plan they come up with to find Lochner is quite good in a sense that in 1969, the way they, they do this, the hot tailing action that they do is really kind of innovative and also because Lochner has been adamant about not revealing the kind of insulin he needs, the way that Wofat gets him to finally reveal the information he needs is really good given all of the scenes that we've seen with them up until that point. He basically uses Lochner's ego against him. And that's how you know that Wofat's really, really good at his job. <laughs> And you know what? Every guest star in this episode was really, really good at their job. So let's take a look at them real quick. As I said, Wofat is back, played by Kai Day. Professor Harold Lochner, as I said, was played by Will Gear. He's probably best known as Grandpa Walton on The Waltons. He also showed up in the shows like Gunsmoke, Mayberry, RFD, Then Came Bronson, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Alias Smith & Jones, Bewitched, Columbo, Medical Center, Starsky & Hutch, and Eight is Enough. 
He also turned up in the movies The Billion Dollar Hobo, Moving Violation, Jeremiah Johnson, The Moonshine Wars, In Cold Blood, and Broken Arrow, the one with James Stewart and Deborah Padgett. And he turned up in the TV movies The Crucible of Mice and Men, one of the versions that I actually didn't have to watch for my freshman honors English class. Who Killed the Mysterious Mr. Foster, Brock's Last Case, Isn't It Shocking, which we watched for the Saturday TV movie live tweet, and it is so, so good. I recommend that one. Hurricane and The Night That Panicked America. Victoria Lochner was played by Sabrina Scharf. We'll see her in two more episodes. She turned up in shows like Gidget, The Man, and The Girl from Uncle, Wild Wild West, Star Trek, I Dream of Jeannie, Gunsmoke, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Mannix, Hogan's Heroes, and The New Perry Mason. She was in the movies Easy Rider, The Virgin President, and Hell's Angels on Wheels. And she was in the TV movie Hunter. Padway was played by Bill Bigelow. He was billed as William F. Bigelow II. We'll see him in 14 more episodes. He also turned up on Magnum P.I. and Jake and the Fat Man. And he has a story credit for an episode of Quantum Leap. Crichton was played by Wright Esser. This is actually his second of 10 episodes. He was Captain Schroeder in Cocoon. Jenny is played by Peggy Ryan, so it's our first appearance by Peggy Ryan as Jenny. She also turned up in an episode of Simon and Simon. She was also in the TV movie Pleasure Palace. She was a singer and dancer who did a lot of musicals, including All Ashore, Men in Her Diary, Babes on Swing Street, Follow the Boys, Miss Annie Rooney, and Girlstown. The next four credits, this is how they are listed. I feel like they could have been referred to in a much better way, but I was not around in 1969 to offer my advice. So... The first Chinese was played by Winston Char. We'll see him in 17 more episodes. He also showed up on Magnum P.I. and Murder, She Wrote. Second Chinese was played by Gary Ava. We'll see him in four more episodes. The third Chinese was played by Milton Mao. This is his only credit. The fourth Chinese was played by Bill Fong. And he only has uh, an uncredited role in the Hawaiians. And as I said, the police dispatcher was our beloved Herman Wedemeyer. The director for this episode was Michael O'Hurley. Get used to seeing his name because he has 36 total episodes of Hawaii Five-O. He also directed three episodes of Maverick, four episodes of Sun- 77 Sunset Strip, four episodes of Surfside Six, 11 episodes of Mr. Novak, five episodes of Rawhide, three episodes of Mission Impossible, three episodes of Medical Center, four episodes of Gunsmoke, seven episodes of Mannix, seven episodes of Police Story, nine episodes of The Fall Guy, and 20 episodes of The A-Team. Between Hawaii Five-O and The A-Team, I've seen a whole lot of this man's work. He also directed the TV movies Detour to Terror, Cry of the Innocent, and Desperate Voyage. And he directed the movies The Fighting Prince of Donegal and the one and only genuine original family band. One of our story credits goes to Edward Lasco. So this is his only ep- episode of Hawaii Five-0, but he, he did write 51 episodes of Charlie's Angels, six episodes of Starsky and Hutch, four episodes of The Rockford Files, five episodes of Mannix, four episodes of Mission Impossible, 13 episodes of The Mod Squad, three episodes of The Virginian, three episodes of Big Valley, seven episodes of Dr. Kildare, and 33 episodes of Combat. 
He also has writing credits for the movies The Broken Land, Woman Hunt, Gentle Giant, and Head On. And he has writing credits for the TV movies The Cliff, The Power Within, and Back to the Planet of the Apes. Our other writing credit goes to Robert Dennis. He did, he wrote six episodes of Hawaii Five-0. We've already had one episode by him, but I don't think I talked about him, so real quick. He has writing credits for 30 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, six episodes of The Untouchables, five episodes of Hawaii and I, 14 episodes of 77 Sunset Strip, 22 episodes of Perry Mason, four episodes of Batman, all King Ted episodes, seven episodes of The Wild Wild West, 19 episodes of Dragnet 67, five episodes of Dan August, six episodes of Canon, and five episodes of Harry O. And he also has writing credits for three Dan August TV movies. And that is 40 Feet High and It Kills. Like I said, love, love, love this episode. Kai Day and Will Gear make this episode. They're so, so good together. And obviously, because he is the arch nemesis for the series, we do get a scene at the end of our hero, Steve McGarrett, facing off with his arch rival, Wofat. Also really, really good. And I should say, without giving anything away, the episode doesn't end like you think it will. I mean, of course, our heroes win in the end, but the resolution is isn't quite what you think it's going to be, but makes perfect sense for two adversaries who have a lot of grudging respect for each other. This episode is absolute magic. You will enjoy it. Give it a watch. Who's McGarrett? Old enemy. One I should have eliminated a long time ago. (laughs) Well, I think I like the sound of him. May his dominant genes replicate. Hi, Steve. Well, she jumped, or was she pushed? We don't know yet. The bedroom's in even worse shape. Yeah, I saw it. I wonder if he found what he was looking for. Episode 4, Just Lucky I Guess, air date October 15th, 1969, directed by Nicholas Colasanto. This is the third of four episodes for him. Story by Jerome Cooper Smith, who's being billed as J. Roberts for some reason. This is the second of 32 for him. Teleplay by Mel Goldberg. This will be five of 12 for him. And Jerome Cooper Smith, aka J. Roberts. Marty Sloan is nervously enjoying the company of Angela Carlson at her apartment when they're interrupted by a knock at the door. Angela gives Sloan a key before hurrying him and his drink outside on the balcony where he hides among some potted palms. She then lets a man named Charlie and a couple of his guys in. As Charlie's men search her apartment, Charlie asks Angela where his merchandise is. Angela denies having it. Charlie doesn't believe her and pushes her off the balcony, unaware he has a witness. 
Steve arrives on the scene to find that the apartment has been torn apart. Outside on the balcony, he finds evidence of the witness, Sloan's drink. Back at his hotel room, Sloan tries to call HPD, but in the end, chickens out. At the office, the information on Angela Carlson, 18, a heroin user but injects behind the knees, expensive lifestyle but no visible means of support, leads 5-0 to determine that she was a high-class sex worker working for Charlie Bombay. They got some prints off of the glass found on the balcony and are waiting word from the FBI on them. In the meantime, Steve has Chin Ho track Angela's last movements while he goes to talk to Charlie, who, of course, denies doing anything illegal. He's a legitimate club owner, you know, and denies knowing Angela. Steve gives him the score, but Charlie doesn't budge. Chin Ho talks to the doorman at Angela's apartment building. At first, the guy doesn't give much information, but with a little pushing from Chin, he eventually tells him that the man with Angela said he was in hardware. At a hardware convention, it's revealed that Marty Sloan is man of the year. Though he looks a little sick at the attention, he manages to give a decent enough speech of thanks, only tripping up near the end when he spots Steve and Danny waiting to talk to him. Sloan ends up leaving with them to go to 5-0 headquarters, which is reported to Charlie Bombay by a snitch working at the hotel. Charlie is very unhappy that his guys didn't find the witness when they were searching Angela's place. The excuse that he was out on the balcony doesn't soothe him. He wants Sloan found, he wants his merchandise, and he wants Sloan killed. At 5-0, Sloan does his best to downplay his involvement with Angela, but Steve calls him out with the facts. Sloan is a solid citizen here for a good time, and it went bad. Sloan is rattled to hear that Angela was only 18. He thought she was 25. He tells Steve what happened, but swears he didn't see who pushed her off the balcony. He says that Angela gave him a key and told him to hide. It turns out that key is to an airport locker, and inside, Kono and Danny find a pink bear stuffed with heroin. That's the merchandise that Charlie is looking for. Steve comes up with the idea to trap Charlie by having policewoman Joyce go undercover as Angela's older sister, who's currently on the mainland in treatment for alcoholism, and attempt to sell the merchandise back to Charlie. He grills Joyce on all of her facts, insisting on perfection. She can't afford a mistake. At the hardware convention, Sloane's friend Willie comes to collect him for a celebratory night out, but Sloane isn't really feeling it. Overcome by guilt, he asks Willie if he's ever stepped out on his wife, which Willie has confessed he has, but she got over it. When Sloan asks Willie what he'd do if the issue was much bigger, Willie tells him that he'd own it and then move to Siberia. While Charlie's goons wait for Sloan to be alone, Joyce turns up in Charlie's office with her deal. Charlie goes to great lengths to verify her identity, an illusion achieved with help from a telephone operator in Kono. Charlie and Joyce agree to a deal and arrange to swap money for the bear the next day in public while Chin Ho listens in. Sloan finally leaves the safety of his friends, which the goons try to capitalize on, first attempting to run him down and then shooting at him in the parking garage. Sloan is saved by Kono and Danny. When Sloan asks for police protection, Steve denies it because Sloan refuses to divulge any more information about Angela's death. However, when Sloan attempts to check out of the hotel... Kono arrives to let him know that he's not going anywhere. Now, the first thing I want to do is explain my feelings on this episode so you'll understand where I'm coming from as we go through it, because I don't actually like this episode very much. I'm not saying it's a bad episode, I'm just saying that I don't particularly care for it. As I've said before, when I watch the episodes for the podcast, I try to watch them twice. 
the first time to take notes for the plot synopsis, the second time to take my own observational notes and to pull sound clips. And to be perfectly honest, when it came to this episode, I really didn't want to have to watch it a second time. It's not that interesting to me. For me, it's a little boring and a little annoying. The concept of the episode to me is intriguing. The idea that there is a reluctant witness out there and they need to find them. That's a good basis for the episode. However, the execution in this case wasn't that great. The big problem, at least for me, rests with our witness, Marty Sloan, because he is such an unsympathetic character that I'm never on his side. And this is of no fault of John Randolph. I think he did a wonderful job with the character. He did what he could with what he had. And I think that's the case for just about every actor in this episode. They did what they could with what they had. But when it comes to Marty Sloan, the basics are right there. He was about to cheat on his wife with a sex worker and it went horribly, horribly wrong. And later when he's talking to his friend Willie about this, how Willie talks to him about it, there's like kind of this insinuation that they, his wife will forgive him for any indiscretions because women just expect that sort of thing from their husbands. And maybe that sort of attitude flew better back in 1969. Here in the year 2020, when I'm recording this, that sort of bullshit doesn't fly quite as high, at least not for me. What I'm seeing here is a middle-aged, affluent white man refusing to take responsibility for his actions and face the consequences of them. And brother, I got no tolerance for that. I'm just never on Marty Sloan's side. And it doesn't help that he's portrayed as such a simpering wimp. He left his spine at home. He's that wimpy. So you can totally understand Steve's frustrations with him, true, but you're also kind of rooting for Charlie Bombay's guys to just run him over because it would make you feel better. Okay, it would make me feel better. The other issue, and it's more of a minor issue I have with this episode, is the character of Charlie Bombay. First of all, he has an amazing name. That is the perfect name for any kind of villain, and I love it. So you have this character with such a great name, and it's a really kind of a flat character. And again, this has nothing to do with the performance. Albert Paulson does what he can with the character, but for the most part, this character is just a very flat, generic bad guy when there was potential for him to be something more interesting. And you see that potential when he's in the office with Joyce as she's undercover as Angela's sister, and they're going back and forth. That scene shows the potential that this this bad guy had to be something other than cookie cutter. And it's just a shame that they couldn't capitalize that and apply it to the entire episode. So yes, I have some issues with this episode, but we're still going to go through it because you know what? You might not. So as opening scenes go, this one is quite memorable because it's very clear what's happening. Angela and Marty Sloan arrive at the apartment building they go upstairs, he fixes drinks for them, and you can see that he is clearly nervous. This is his first time cheating on his wife. Probably his first time with a sex worker. And there's this implication, and maybe Steve actually says it later, that the main reason why he's doing it is because he is in Hawaii. He's far from home, so no one he knows back in his own community, his wife, his daughter, will find out that he's doing this which later plays out as the big motivation as to why he doesn't want to come forward as a witness. So he's very nervous about the whole thing, which I suppose is supposed to 
help lay the groundwork of him having a good set of, of morals. That he is going to cheat on his wife, but, you know, he's nervous about it. He's unsure. So this is how I guess they decide to paint him as the quote-unquote good guy, is that he is nervous about doing this. His heart isn't entirely in it, I suppose. But then there's a knock on the door. Angela hands him a key, shoves him out on the balcony and tells him to hide. Charlie comes in demanding his merchandise and then very unceremoniously chases her through the apartment, gets her out on the, the balcony and just shoves her over. It's a jarring murder, especially when you know that Marty Sloan is out on the balcony so you know that there's a witness. It's a great opening scene. And then we get the rest of it. So Fivo arrives. They quickly determine that there was a witness thanks to Sloan leaving his glass out on the balcony. Though props to Angela for making sure Marty took his glass with him because she wanted Charlie to think she was there alone. And how often have we seen when that ruse is attempted that they inadvertently leave the extra glass out or there's cigarettes with lipstick on them in the ashtray. So props to Angela for, for thinking on her feet. Unfortunately, she didn't land on them. Anyway, Five O was trying to track down this witness, but just taking a look at Angela, they realized that she was probably working for Charlie Bombay. And Steve goes and he talks to Charlie and they have the usual back and forth a rather uninspired back and forth in which Charlie proclaims his innocence and ignorance and Steve isn't buying it. The only thing really eye-catching in that whole scene is that whatever drink Charlie Bombay is making, it ends up looking like NyQuil. And as flat as I think this character tends to come off, props to him for drinking something that looks like cough syrup. That truly shows his potential for murder. Anyway, in the meantime, Chin Ho goes to talk to the doorman, which is a much more interesting conversation because Chin Ho, it's Chin Ho leaning on someone, poking them to make them give up information. And who doesn't love that? But Chin Ho gets the necessary information that leads them to the hardware convention where they're able to find Marty Sloan, who almost looks like he's expecting them, despite his aborted call to HPD. And he willingly goes with them. And Charlie's snitch rats them out. Now, this is the point where any kind of sympathy you might have for Marty Sloan goes just chucking out the window. Okay, you bought her a drink and you left together. No, I left alone. Not according to the bartender. Oh, uh, oh wait a minute. <laughs> I remember now. Uh, we did leave together, like you said, but uh, she went her way. And you went her way. Look, you have no right to treat me this way. I'm not a criminal. I know exactly who you are, Mr. Sloan. You're vice president charge of sales, Sacramento Hardware. You've been married 18 years. you got four kids. You're a member of a church, Boy Scout leader, a respected member of the community. No, you're not a criminal. Just a guy living it up for a week. You couldn't be more wrong, Mr. McGarrett. I don't think so. We see your type every day. You're here in a convention. You want to dance all night. But when you get into trouble, when you have to pay the piper... <laughs> you got me all wrong. When you get into trouble and you have to pay the piper, you fall back on your solid citizens act. And you're just kind of like, you watched this girl get murdered and you're more concerned with saving your own ass than doing the right thing. I'm telling you, his spine must not have fit in the overhead compartment. At one point, Steve points out that Angela was only 18 and Marty Sloan is shocked by this because I guess his daughter is 18. And his excuse was, oh, I thought she was 25. And I'm like, sir, 
you are like 45 in 1969 years. How does that make it better? It's not the argument you think it is. But Steve calls him out and, and he does get some pertinent information from Sloan in that he admits that he was there. I don't think he goes so far as to say why he was there, but he does admit to being there, that they had had a couple of drinks, that somebody knocked on the door, that she gave him a key and put him outside on the balcony, told him to hide, but he swears he didn't see who pushed her over because the plants were in the way. Now, Steve totally does not buy that Sloane did not see who pushed Angela off the balcony. However, he's distracted by the existence of this key, which fits the airport locker, and that's where Danny and Kono find the bear full of heroin. Now, here's where the episode kind of splits off into two different branches because now Steve has a new way to get a hold of Charlie Bombay, and that's by having Joyce go undercover as Angela's sister and attempt to sell the heroin back to him. In doing that, he kidnap him on drug charges. However, there's still the problem of getting justice for Angela and nailing Bombay for her murder, and he's gonna need Sloan for that. He needs that witness. So now Steve is running on two different tracks, sort of. Which again, it adds an interesting element to the episode. Joyce going undercover as Angela's sister was much more interesting and much more fulfilling and satisfying than trying to get Marty Sloan to not be a weak bastard and admit that he had seen Charlie kill Angela. Because once again, we have Steve working with a female police officer named Joyce. And I couldn't figure out, they never said her last name, so I couldn't figure out if Joyce was supposed to be Joyce Weber from Full Fathom 5 in the first first season, which she was played by Patricia Smith, and it was just a matter of recasting. Or if this was just a different policewoman named Joyce. Considering the fact that when Steve was going through her information with her, drilling her on everything she needed to know to pass herself off as Angela's sister, he was being really, really hard on her. I feel like it was probably a different police officer named Joyce rather than Joyce Weber from the first season, just because he was not that brutal with her the first time. And after having worked with her once in an undercover operation, I think that he wouldn't have been such a prick as he was with this Joyce. So apparently there are multiple officers employed by the Honolulu Police Department named Joyce. But this Joyce isn't quite meeting Steve's standards because he insists on perfection. But she also has the drive to to do a good job, but I think she's hampered a little bit by inexperience. You would never know it when she actually gets in the office with Charlie, she's quite good. Because when she goes to see Charlie, the role she is playing of Angela's sister, Angela's sister is a recovering alcoholic. And one of the ways, and this is why the scene between Joyce and Charlie Bombay just elevates the episode out of being totally annoying blah to it's at least got this something interesting because those two together in that scene, you have Joyce sitting in a chair smoking a cigarette. Charlie Bombay gets up and he casually walks over to his bar and pours himself a drink and he actually plays with the ice in the drink, which I think is gross. Keep your fingers out of your your liquids. And he's doing it as a test to see if he gets a rise out of Joyce, who is supposed to be a recovering alcoholic. And Joyce plays that. She responds like Charlie would think she would respond to be in the presence of alcohol and not be able to drink any. So it was really good that they actually put that little test in there for Joyce to pass. 
the rest of it is verifying that she made a phone call to New Jersey, I think it was, him calling his own friends in New Jersey. And both of those things are carried out by Kono and the operator. And then later, because when he calls his friends, the scene switches to, I want to say it's to Marty Sloan doing something, but I can't remember the exact order. But it switches away from that, so you're kind of left hanging on whether or not she will pass the the friend test, which she obviously does, because when they come back, they're arguing brass tacks over the price of the heroin and where they're going to meet and how they're going to exchange it. And the whole time, Chin Ho is listening in on an audio device that's in Joyce's lighter, which I thought was quite clever. What makes that so great is because Joyce is kind of in control here. She has what he wants. She has the leverage. And you get to watch Charlie become incredibly exasperated by not having the upper hand and having to give in to Joyce's demands. That scene alone, just that exasperation scene alone, gave Charlie Bombay so much more character than what we had seen with his scene with Steve. There he was just a flat average bad guy. Here he had personality. Oh, it could have been. So they do arrange to have the exchange done in public because Joyce is not an idiot. Meanwhile, you have Marty Sloan finally separating from his friends. He says he needs some air. So he goes to a parking garage. That's where I go for air. And he's at first nearly run down and then shot at by Charlie Bombay's goons. But he's saved by Danny and Kono. And even after the near miss, even after knowing someone had tried to kill him to keep him quiet, he still will not give up the necessary information. And again, Steve calls him out on his bullshit. I'm a citizen. I have a right to police. All right. Yes. That's very funny, Mr. Sloan. We protect two million a year like you. You come and you go. You play games in that 100 square block for Waikiki. Pretty stupid games, things you wouldn't be caught dead doing back home. But still, we protect you. We bust our guts to protect you. But when we need your help, it's a different story, isn't it? And there's still no effect. This guy is so afraid of his image being tarnished and what the neighbors are going to think that he can't stand up and do the right thing. It is really, really hard to sympathize with him at all in this episode, as far as I'm concerned. It is really hard when you see just how pathetically weak he is. Because so much of this episode has to do with morals and moralizing, and, and Steve does quite a bit of that. And to see this guy who is supposed to be this upstanding citizen just melt under pressure, it exposes a lot of the hypocrisy that is prevalent in society, but it's also just annoying as hell to watch. So his next move is to try to get off the island. He's going to check out and leave instead of telling Steve everything he knows. And I, and Steve anticipates this move because he sends Kono to the hotel room and saying, yeah, you're not going anywhere. Now there's some ethically questionable things that occur when it comes to the final showdown. Because we have two final showdowns. We have to have the final showdown over the heroine, and we have to have the final showdown with Marty Sloan and Charlie Bombay. And I'm not going to spoil them for you, obviously, but I will say, we, so one showdown has a payoff, a satisfying payoff. The other one, not so much. Bet you can't guess which showdown I thought worked best. But you know what did work best? This guest cast, because like I said, they did the best they could with what they had. 
Charlie Bombay was played by Albert Paulson. We'll see him in three more episodes. He was Anthony Korf in the Stop Susan Williams segments of Cliffhangers. He also showed up on shows like The Untouchables, 77 Sunset Strip, Combat, Man From U.N.C.L.E., Rat Patrol, Mission Impossible, The Rockford Files, The Odd Couple, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Charlie's Angels, Trapper John M.D., Columbo, Galactica 1980, Manimal, Automan, Knight Rider, and Airwolf. He was in the movies Eyewitness, The Next Man, Che, and The Manchurian Candidate. And he showed up in the TV movies Call to Danger, Search for the Gods, McNamara's Band, The Gypsy Warriors, and Sideshow. Marty Sloan was played by John Randolph, probably best known as Clark Sr. in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He was also Harris Weldon on Grand, Red McGuire on Annie McGuire, which was a short-lived Mary Tyler Moore show from 1989. He was Randall Benson on Angie. He was Dr. Don Hoagland on Lucan. And he was Mr. Brockleman on Richie Brockleman, Private Eye. He also showed up in the TV shows The Patty Duke Show, The Invaders, Mission Impossible, Night Gallery, The Rookies, Bonanza, Mannix, Columbo, Kojak, Wonder Woman, The Bob Newhart Show, MASH, Nero Wolf, Quincy, Voyagers, Dynasty, Trapper John MD, Matlock, Roseanne, and ER. He was in the movies You Got Mail, Francis, Heaven Can Wait, The 1976 King Kong, Earthquake, Serpico, Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and There Was a Crooked Man. He was in the TV movies A Death of Innocence, Kill Me If You Can, The Gathering, The Adventures of Nellie Bly, and The Execution. Joyce was played by Anne Helm. We saw her previously in the episode by The Numbers. She played Irene Park. Angela Carlson was played by Elaine Joyce. We'll see her in one more episode. She was Marsha on City of Angels, which was a short-lived series with Wayne Rogers. And she was Alexandra on Mr. Merlin, which is a short-lived series with Barnard Hughes. She also turned up in the shows Route 66, The Andy Griffith Show, Green Acres, The Carol Burnett Show, Love American Style, Kojak, Quincy, Chips, Charlie's Angels, Super Train, Magnum P.I., Love Boat, Masquerade, Simon and Simon, Murder, She Wrote, and Beverly Hills 90210. She was in the movies Trick or Treat, the 80s Trick or Treat, Motel Hell, Such Good Friends, and How to Frame a Fig. And she was in the TV movies Lost Flight, A Guide for the Married Woman with Sybil Shepherd, Alone at Last, and... Allison Sidney Harrison. Willie was played by Herb Vigran. He has 378 credits on IMDb going back to 1934, so here are just a few. He played Judge Brooker on Gunsmoke. He was Ernest Hinshaw on The Ed Wynn Show. And he was the voice of Mr. Dinkle on Shirt Tales, which I loved as a child. He also turned up in the shows The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, Leave It to Beaver, the 50s and 60s Dragnet, Perry Mason, 77 Sunset Strip, Maverick, The Danny Thomas Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Andy Griffith Show, Ozzie and Harriet, The Lucy Show, Bonanza, Gomer Pyle, Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, Bewitched, Emergency Charlie's Angels, and Galactica 1980. He was in the movies Every Girl Should Have One, The Shaggy DA, Support Your Local Gunfighter, Benji, Herbie Rides Again, and he provided a voice for Charlotte's Web. And he was in the TV movies, I Was a Mail Order Bride and Kill Me If You Can with John Randolph. The first hood was played by TJ Castronova as Tom Castronova. He was Tommy Jeffries on Taxi. 
He also turned up in the shows Batman, McCloud, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, SWAT, Police Story, Rhoda, Kojak, Cagney and Lacey, and Hunter. He was in the movies Project Metal Beast, Under Surveillance, Double Revenge, and Ninja 3, The Domination. And he was in the TV movies Blood Feud, Return to Green Acres, Perfect Crimes, and Sleep Baby Sleep. The second hood was played by Adnan Al Casey, who was billed as Billy White Wolf, who was a professional wrestler in the 1970s. The shoeshine man was Roberta Costa. This is the third of 12 episodes we've seen him in. The waiter was Roy Uhara. He was billed as Roy Vihara, and this is his only credit. Lieutenant Croft was played by Mitch Mitchell. We'll see him in 14 more episodes. He was also in the TV movie Death Moon, and he had an uncredited role in Tora Tora Tora, which I think if you were living in Hawaii at that time, you were automatically in that movie. The Doorman was played by Sam Peters. We'll see him in eight more episodes. He also turned up on The Brian Keith Show, The McKenzie's of Paradise Cove, Magnum P.I., and Jake and the Fat Man. The operator was Momi Makanani. This is her only credit. And the bartender was George Gunkel. And this is his only credit. And that is Just Lucky, I Guess. Definitely not one of my favorite episodes. Overall, from an objective standpoint, I guess it's an okay episode. From a personal standpoint, I just really don't care for it. But hey, the only way that you can decide whether or not it's okay or a waste of time is if you give it a watch. What is it? I think I stopped believing in you. Ooh, Santa Claus. What is it? H, heroin. is episode 15 of Bookum Dano. Not a moment too soon because the neighbors are starting to mow. Thank you so much for joining me. Two very different episodes, at least in my opinion, because there is one, it's one that I really, really love and one that I really kind of don't. But hey, they can't all be winners. If you would like to find me online, you can do that at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. There you will find the home for Bookum Dano. However, if you would like to experience me complaining about things in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So mind those fake tsunami warnings and stay out of trouble by sticking to the convention itinerary. Until next time, aloha!